So there are times when sin and wickedness disrupt our lives and we cannot control the immediate outcome. We live in a world that is affected by sin from Genesis chapter 3. Uh, sin is greater than us and we are really not in control of everything that happens in our lives and around us. For example, someone at work could lie about you and you can't control how that lie goes. You could actually lose your job or someone says something about you publicly or about your company or about your product and you are losing business because of sin that happened outside of you and you can't control that. Uh, young people, you could be going to school and somebody says a comment to a friend and it spreads like wildfire and you can't control it. You can't put it out. Other times it's not what somebody essentially says. It can be what people do. I've been reading a biography on Jonathan Edwards who was a pastor in the 1700s and he was kicked out of his church. He was aiming to establish the biblical practice of communion being for those who were genuinely converted. And a lot of folks in his congregation were used to it as being a practice that just people in the town who attended could partake in. And so Jonathan, as a pastor, and most of you would have heard his name because of his influence, um, this turned out to be a trial in his life where he couldn't control it. And eventually, after 25 years of pastoring at that church, there were enough people <clears throat> who disagreed with him and actually kicked him out. Uh, more broadly speaking for us, there is sin. There is the effects of sin. There are hardships that we face uh, when the narrative of our society belittles biblical Christian values. The Christian values that we hold to, our, our society belittles them in such a way that conclusions from society say you are intolerant, you are closed-minded, you are uneducated, and therefore you are shut out of maybe the opportunity to speak or to speak into something. These are all things that take place in a world that is marked by sin. This is the world that we live in. And the point is that you can't control everything. And it hurts deeply when it seems as though sinners are winning. When sinners have control of what's going on. It hurts because you're saying, no, I stand for truth and truth should be out in front. And it seems as though truth is losing in all of this. So what should you hold on to when you can't control the outcome of other people's sinful actions? What should Christians hold on to when you can't control the outcome of other people's sinful actions? So if you're joining us today, maybe you're in town for vacation, uh, we're glad you're here. We've been studying the Psalms for the month of August. We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes uh, starting in September. Two important truths that we have realized about the Psalms. Number one, the Psalms are written to give voice to the emotions of your soul. 
The Psalms are filled with hardship and turmoil. There are Psalms reflecting political instability. There are Psalms reflecting emotions of when a child is hurting a parent, Absalom hurting David. There are Psalms that are being written about from the emotions of a parent who has lost a child. Uh, some of those psalms are written when people around the psalmist were aiming to take him down and dislodge him from his place in authority. There are psalms that reflect on the guilt and the anguish of personal sin. There are psalms that are praiseworthy and are joyful, but for the last few weeks we've been looking at psalms that pour out the emotions of your soul. And so these psalms will connect with you in some of the most difficult seasons of life. The psalms are language. They give you language for when you're going through those hard times. And you can look to God and you can say, God, this stinks. This hurts. And God is telling you it's okay to communicate to him in this kind of way. It's okay to say, God, this hurts. Where are you, God? How long, O Lord? When will you rise up? Awake from your, sl from your slumber. These are phrases in the Psalms that God says, it's okay for you to bring these to me, these phrases. It's okay to pour out your emotions like this. So that's one significant aspect of the Psalms. The second significant aspect is that the Psalms will buoy you up with truth about who God is. So the Psalms take you from the language of the soul that is hard that is emotional, but they don't stop there. The psalmist, under the inspiration of God, gives you a handle to hold on to. So if you feel like you're drowning in water, he gives you a flotation device, if you will, truth, that rises you up to the top. You pop up and you're like, okay, I can breathe now. Doesn't necessarily take away the dark waters of life, but he brings you up to the surface where you can have hope. So you've got this this good tension that's going on. God, this hurts, but God, I have something to hold on to. And this is why the Psalms are uh, what we should be studying and soaking ourselves into. So this morning is Psalm 7. The title of the Psalm in your Bible says that it's a shigayon. That's not an everyday word. I don't think I've really used it in my life at all. But it's probably a musical term in Israel, ancient Israel. Uh, the title goes on to say that this psalm that we're going to study this morning was written by David as it concerned the words of Cush, a Benjamite, another name that we might not use for our children, Shigayan and Cush, two odd words here, but Cush was a Benjamite. And in short, you need to remember who was from the tribe of Benjamin who preceded David in kingship? It was Saul. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And the idea here is that some of Saul's tribe, Cush, this man Cush, can be out there with criticisms and slander against David because they wanted their tribe back on the throne. They wanted somebody else in authority. They're disappointed with leadership, and we want you gone, and we want somebody from the tribe of Benjamin to come back. So it's a time of political upheaval, and David's on the throne. Tensions are running high, 
And he could be feeling as though things are outside of his control. So as we move into Psalm 7, here's the big idea that I want you to take away this morning. The big idea is this. Because God is judge, everything is going to be okay. That's what we see in this psalm. Because God is judge, everything is going to be okay. Now you see this theme of judge very explicitly in verse 8. That's where he starts opening up with the language, the clear language of God being a judge, where he says, the Lord judges the people. And then he says, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in my heart. We're going to see the term judge or judgment quite a bit in the psalm. And so you need to know that David is moving there in his thought process. It's the buoy that he's holding on to as he's sort of swimming through these dark waters, that God is the judge. So there are five points to the sermon, and again, I'll give them to you as we go through the sermon. Five sections, I guess you could say. The first section is in verses one and two, and we see here confidence in God as my refuge. Confidence in God as my refuge. Verses one and two, just look at the language, the words that he uses here. Oh Lord, my God. Uh, you see the names of God which are important for us. David is using these in specific ways. The term Lord is another name for Yahweh. Uh, specifically, this term for God, Lord that is, signifies his relationship to his people. It's his covenantal name that he used when establishing the covenant, the Mosaic covenant with Israel. You also see David addressing him as God, and this is the term Elohim, the term for God that's found in Genesis 1, and so you see God as someone who is in relationship with his people, but you also see God as the Genesis 1 creator who flung the stars into the universe, these stars that are millions of light years away and billions of them. He flung all of that into existence and even with our bodies, he puts everything into place, all the microscopic organisms that are keeping you working well this morning, God established that. So the massive creation down to the microscopic, God is the creator of them all. And so David is saying, oh Lord, God, relational creator, and just notice the pronoun in there in verse one, he says, you are my God. There is a confidence in his relationship with creator God. He says in verse 1, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. You'll notice here that refuge is found not in a place, but in a person. Refuge for David was found in his personal relationship with with God. God is his refuge, and this is a theme that takes off throughout the Psalms. I was just doing some work on it this last week, and there's about 47 to 50 different times that you're going to see the word refuge throughout the book of Psalms. A few verses that highlight this. I just picked out four of them. Psalm 2, verse 12. It says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
Psalm 5, verse 11. And as we go through these, notice how refuge is connected to the person of God. Psalm 5, verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you, that is God himself, rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. Psalm 16, verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Psalm 62, we read this earlier in the service, on God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Now, when you think about this term refuge, what is a refuge? Refuge is a place where we find safety. Danger is lurking out there, danger that is greater than you, and you have to find a place of refuge, a refuge that is greater than the danger. We've had a few storms come through West Michigan in the last month or so, and you know, you pull out the phone, you look on the radar, and you start noticing colors on the radar. Green, it's gonna be all right. Yellow, all right. Red, lots of red. Okay, this could get interesting. So about a month ago, I don't know, time-wise, we saw a lot of red coming and there was the possibility of strong winds. And while there's not a tree in our yard, there's a tree in the neighbor's yard. And it's at night and the kids are going down and we're thinking to ourselves, uh, what if the sirens go off tonight? Do we really want to wake up the kids in the middle of the night? So what do we do when we know that a storm is coming, a storm that could have potential to be greater than us? uh, We ended up going downstairs and just doing a family sleepover in the basement that night. Um, It would be foolish for us in the middle of a storm, to go out and stick our chest out front and say, hit me with your best shot kind of thing. Fire away, right? Um, This storm is greater than us. And in a silly way, you can almost see this scene where somebody who thinks they're tough goes out there and sticks out their their chest, and is like, come on, storm, like, like, let's see what you got. And God sends a lightning bolt down and hits the tree, and the tree comes down and pushes them four feet into the ground or something. You know, you can see the foolishness of somebody standing up to something that is greater than them being arrogant about it. No, what you need in that moment is a refuge to go to. And David's point is, these things that are around me right now, The people that are around me, the conditions that are around me, they are greater than I am. And so where am I going to go when sin or the outcome of sin is greater than me? He's not going to himself. He's not internalizing or inward focusing or scheming to come up with next step forward. Oh Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. There are problems that are way greater than us. There is sin that is way greater than us. We have to find our refuge in God. Your soul, like where's it swimming this morning? 
is it swimming in or toward God as your refuge? There's an important truth that we need to know about what happens during times of turmoil. What we turn to in the middle of our challenges will be what we become dependent on. When life is hard, the place that you turn is going to be what you become dependent on. It becomes your source of life. It becomes what you draw on. So when life gets hard, if you're turning to drugs, alcohol, porn, that's going to be what is your refuge. That's going to be what feeds you. That's going to be what is coming into you, if you will. But for those who find refuge in God, you're, you're finding in him something that is much greater than the problem. You're finding life in God himself. And you need God to give you that life. You can't find that anywhere else. And so for the psalmist, he sees everything that's going on. God, I need you. We need God this morning. We live in a broken, sinful world. We need him as our refuge. In verses 1 and 2, the language picks up kind of pictorially. O oh Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Verse 2, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. So David is looking at his life. He uses the term soul here, which could be translated life, who he is. And he's just feeling like the lion could come and limb by limb tear him apart. You ever feel like the world is the enemy? Taking away one peaceful part of your life, one area at a time, deconstructing your peace, and then not only taking it away and leaving the wounds there, but reconstructing it with ideas or practices that are destructive to you and the rest of your family. Ever feel like the world is sort of like a pride of lions that continues to just circle. You see the fangs, you hear the roar. Seems to be devouring. I think many of you can relate to that, especially if you have young children. And again, the question is, what are you seeking for refuge? What are you teaching your children to seek for refuge? It has to be the greatness of who God is. God is our refuge. Verses 1 and 2, he's confident about God in his, as his refuge. Verses 3 through 5, our second section, what we see here is humility before God as the judge. Humility before God as the judge, again, knowing that this judge theme is coming, which we'll see here more explicitly in a few minutes, what David does is kind of interesting. He knows that there are wrongdoers out there, and he could be quick to bring them up in his argument and say, God, see their sin, look at this, and, and run down the list of offenses that are against God. But he doesn't do that first in verses 3 through 5. What he does is he opens up his own heart in humility before God. So verse 3, O oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, 
If I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. And then he uses that comment, Selah. And the point that's going on here is David is aiming to practice a humble transparency. He truly believes in God as judge and he knows that he is held to the same standard that his enemy is going to be held to. And so he's saying, God, the temptation might be for me to quickly indict him or her or the world, but let me just be honest, God, if you see something in my life that is sinful, if you see an attitude, if you see a heart in my life that is sinful, God, expose this. Let it be known. And in all of this, David is demonstrating a true spirit of humility where he's willing to place himself under God's rule and authority. My mind goes to Micah 6.8, where God asks the question, what does the Lord require of you? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness, and here it is, to walk humbly with your God. And so one aspect of true humility here that you see is that David is willing to be held to the same standard that he desires the world to be held to. Uh, in this, I think you see an essential truth. When we're going through life and we see all kinds of sin that is happening around us, uh, David is very aware that he could be having blind spots. Blind spots to his own sin. And, and you see how he says, if I have done anything, if there's wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend evil free, basically if there is sin in my life, God, show it to me. There's this humble transparency. Are, are we stepping into that when we're struggling with the sin, the hurt from other people? Um we have our blind spots. We don't like to see our blind spots because of pride. But we do have our blind spots. We have our practices of sin. You've been around people who have bad breath, and rarely are they the ones who smell it first. They're out there just kind of puffing away and you're stepping back more and more and you're like, man, I wish this person knew they needed to brush their teeth or uh, after lunch, they needed a piece of mint gum or something. In our life as Christians, we can have that same sort of blindness about our sins. You know, so worried about what's going on, but not concerned about our own walk with the Lord. And here David is demonstrating a very clear trend of humility here. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the spirit of David. So are you humbly aware that you have sin in your life as well? Section number three, verses six and seven. A plea for God to judge. A plea for God to judge. Over the last 18 months, we've heard the word pivot quite a bit. Companies have had to pivot. 
their strategies. We've had to look elsewhere to do business effectively. So heading down one stream, now we pivot. Now David is pivoting here in verses 6 and 7. Look again at the language. And look how it connects with our emotions. He says in verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. Sometimes it feels as though God is not awake to your life. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. And over it return on high. That last phrase, over it return on high. The NIV has translated it. You sit enthroned over them on high. And the idea is that in the courtroom, here comes the judge to sit down in the chair and the judge is up above all of those in front of the court. And so now court is in session and David wants God to sit down in the seat and be practicing as a judge. And so David is continually drawing his focus now to the Lord and specifically in this psalm, he is developing this theme that with all of the heaviness that's going on, God, I need to see you very specifically as the judge. I need to see you as the one who is going to be ruling over all people, coming to conclusions and verdicts. David continually keeps his focus there. As we go through the Psalms, this is a common theme. One psalm I'd like you to see is Psalm 22. I've got it up there on the screen. This is a messianic psalm. Uh, these are basically words and feelings that are prophetic about Jesus in his life that would come true later on in the Gospels. Psalm 22, you'll recognize some of the language that connects with Jesus on the cross. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet." I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. There's the language of Christ on the cross. And in one sense, he sees the effect of sin coming into his life. But where does the perspective go? What is it that our Savior is holding on to? His perspective goes to his Father. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. And so what we're seeing here is continually this theme that when life is hard, your perspective has to go to God. And David is saying so many different ways, he is a judge for us. So when your life gets rocked by the world, when a person takes to Facebook and hurts you in subtle or not so subtle ways, when the rumor is spread, when the opportunity is unjustly taken away from you, when you're truly the victim of someone else's selfishness, where should you turn? David would say, turn to God. So take time to pray about the tax that you've been facing. Pivot from looking at your circumstances. Take your focus to the Lord 
and you can even name these things specifically as you saw in Psalm 22. God, here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I've gone through. You are the judge. Fourth section here is a trust in God's judgment. Verses 8 through 16, a trust in God's judgment. In verse 8 and verse 9, you see the breadth of God's judgment. Verse 8, he says, the Lord judges the peoples. This is the nations. This is the groups. All people are going to come before God and be judged. Abraham said in Genesis 18, 25, shall not the judge of, notice the extent, all the earth do what is just. And so you can be confident that all people are accountable to God. In verse 9, you see the depth of God's judgment when he says that you test the minds and the hearts. God is able to look down to the very depths of what is going on in a person knowing where that action came from. Nothing is lost in God's sight. In verse 11, you see the righteousness of God as a judge where he says God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And so what God does on his throne as he sits in judgment, it will be right. And his anger is a righteous anger. In verses 12 through 16, there are two pictures of judgment that David brings into the psalm. And I'm just labeling this the surety of God's judgment. The first picture focuses on God where he says, if a man does not repent, God will wet or sharpen his sword He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. It's an interesting picture where David is seeing God at this wheel that is spinning. And he has brought his sword to the edge and he's sharpening it on this spinning wheel and the sparks are flying. And and God is like a warrior who is preparing his sword for battle. His bow has been strung up. It's tight. And in the corner, there are the arrows. And these arrows are like fiery. They have fiery shafts. They're going to do damage when the warrior uses these. And so here's a warrior who goes out. He goes out on behalf of his people. And there's this surety that God is preparing. He's preparing to do war on behalf of his people. The second picture in verses 14 through 16 Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. It's an interesting picture. Here's a pregnancy that's taking place. He's conceived evil. He has mischief within him, and eventually he's going to give birth to deception. In verses 15 and 16, still looking at the wicked man, he makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. And so you've got this sort of sowing and reaping picture that takes place. The wicked individual is sowing all kinds of evil, and he's going to reap it here soon. So you've got 12 and 13, God the warrior, who will bring justice. Verses 14 through 16, there is this picture of just folly that results in destruction. There was a Presbyterian pastor who took these two sections here and wrote about them in this way. Ralph Davis is his name. He said, if an Eskimo has a problem with a wolf, he actively plans out how to use the bloodthirsty instinct of the wolf against him. First, the Eskimo cuts or coats 
his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. He adds several more layers of frozen blood until the blade is totally concealed. So you can see this blade that has an icicle of blood on top of it, red blood. Next, he puts his knife in the ground with the blade sticking up. And when a wolf follows his nose and finds the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh frozen blood. He begins to lick faster with much more gusto, lapping at the blade until the sharp edge is bare. But now he is feverishly licking harder and harder, his craving so intense that the wolf does not notice the sting of a bare blade on his own tongue. Nor does he recognize the moment when his unquenchable thirst is being satisfied with his own warm blood. He craves more and more until he's found in the snow the next morning. The point that David is making is that God's judgment can happen in both active and in passive ways. The judge will see that the sinful actions of the wicked will lead to their eternal doom. That's what David is saying here. It will come to a time of judgment. And so the truth that David is holding on to right now, the truth that needs to sink in is this. Just simply, folks, God will judge the wicked. He will judge the wicked. He has the last word as a judge does in the courtroom. God will judge the wicked. Now let's just keep chasing that theme for a little bit. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul is saying, keep chasing your sin, keep running in sin. If that's what you want, what you are doing is storing up for yourself God's wrath, but it will come in the day of judgment. And so this is like a warning sign to the wicked. It's a blinking sign calling them to repentance. And if you don't repent, you will be receiving judgment, God's holy, fiery judgment upon yourself. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, it's written this way. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Okay, that's, that's kind of a handle and it sounds morbid because love your neighbor, love your enemy. Okay, but here's truth. That God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when, not right now, but when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. All right, so the scripture is very clear. God will judge the wicked. 
And so in times where we find ourselves on the receiving end of all of the hurt, turmoil, confusion, deconstruction, reconstruction of wickedness, and we're saying, this is far greater than us, and you feel like you're losing, David is saying, and the Bible is saying, God is speaking to us, the last word has not been spoken. You have to remember while you're going through this that God will judge the wicked. Great trials, folks, require you to have a great big view of God. Great trials require you to have great big theology of God. And this is one of the aspects, as you read through Scripture and study it, you have to see this facet of who God is. Yes, he is an all-loving God. Yes, he is a kind God. But yes, he is the judge, and he will carry out his judgment. God will judge the wicked. So that leads David to verse 17. He's found his buoy, if you will. He's found his flotation device, and he's rising up now from the dark waters. And in verse 17, you hear him breathing again. So he says in verse 17, which I've just labeled here the fifth section of the psalm, thankfulness to God. After recognizing that God will judge the wicked, look what he says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. This is how he's moving forward. Everything is feeling doom and gloom, but then you get to verse 17. What has popped him up above the water here? It's the truth that God will judge the wicked. And in response to that, he can say, okay, God, I can praise you and I can thank you. I know now that everything is going to be okay. Does this reflect your heart this morning? Does this reflect the inner currents of your heart from this past week? This is what the people of God need to hold on to when the world appears to be going to hell in this handbasket or however the phrase goes. God, you will, you will, you will judge the wicked. And you, as the people of God, can be thankful that this is who God is. So here are a couple of ways that we can apply this psalm, two ways. Number one is this. As the people of God, we need to pivot our hearts from the situation to the certainty of God. You need to pivot your heart from the situation to the certainty of who God is. In Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, we read this familiar phrase, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We need to meditate on this great truth that creator God is the judge. I need to pivot my heart from the situation to the certainty of who God is. I need to gaze upon God. And so many times we find ourselves going to bed at night with replays going on in our minds of the wickedness and sin. And the Psalms lead us to go from that area of focus to the greatness of God. And so we should be able to pillow our heads at night, at least with this truth to balance out the tension that God will judge the wicked. 
pivot your heart from the situation to the certainty of God. Application number two. The judgment of God leads us to appreciate the grace of God. The judgment of God leads us to appreciate the grace of God. Let me ask you a question. Does the judgment of God sometimes make him look like a grumpy dad who is more happy to hurt people? Because I think sometimes that's a critique against Christianity. Sometimes it's one of those feelings where we've looked at God in ways that he is all love, that we forget that he is also a holy judge. And sometimes folks can say, "Ah, I just don't like that aspect of God. He looks like a grumpy dad who is more than happy to hurt people. And the reality is that when you study all of Scripture together, you gain a much higher view of God. And so we have to study the righteous judgment of God. And what happens when you study the righteous judgment of God, it will move you to appreciate the grace of God in your life all the more. Let me explain it this way. I came across this in my reading this last week. If you have a glass of milk on the table, it's nice to see it and you might appreciate it quenches your thirst. But if you stick one of those Komodo dragon hot peppers in your mouth, you are in deep trouble. Your mouth is on fire and it's burning. And now that glass of milk becomes all the more winsome to you. If you don't know, milk is what sort of neutralizes spicy peppers in your mouth. In that moment, milk becomes a treasure because it is the only thing that can solve the burning that's taking place. When we study the intensity of God's judgment, we should be stepping back and appreciating the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice on behalf of the wicked. And when I say the wicked, we are all pointing our fingers at ourselves We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we all stand before God, the judge. We all have sin on our accounts, and we deserve the eternal wrath of God. And so you might say, am I the wicked? It's a great question. This has to be settled in our hearts this morning because when it comes time for the nations, the peoples, to stand before God as the judge, there will be only two people, the sinful and the righteous. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, we see this truth. For our sake, the Father made him the Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And So here we all are before God. We are all wicked before God. We all deserve just judgment. And here is God's grace that he would send Jesus into the world, Jesus would come and live a perfectly obedient life, a righteous life before the Father. He's the only one who could stand before the judge and say, I have no sin. We need that life. And what the Father did on behalf of us is he made Jesus sin for us. And so Jesus goes to the cross and willfully takes the punishment that we deserved for our sin. 
Jesus is substituted in our place and he takes the punishment that we deserve. And so the writer here is saying that he made him, that's Jesus, sin for us so that we could have his righteousness. And so this gift of righteousness is offered at the cross. And all of us who are coming into the judgment of God, the only way we're going to be able to stand in the judgment of God is if by faith we have received the righteousness of Christ. So in the end, we're saying, God, you are a holy judge. Everybody stands before you. And then we just look to his grace all the more, and we're thankful that through Christ we have this grace to pass through the judgment. Have you received God's grace? The end of Psalm 7 leaves us with a buoy. It leaves us coming up above the surface. There's sin and there's wickedness that's taking place. God is the judge, and it leaves us with a treasure that in Christ we will come through the judgment because of the grace that he offers to us. Let's pray.